Well, I'm not sure what he meant by me setting him up, except that you got all of my boys' names wrong. <laughs> you just didn't write stuff down correctly, I guess. My, my wife and I are a very godly couple. You see, we did name all of our boys after people in the Bible, but not Andrew, Benjamin, uh, what are the others? What names? <laughs> Noah, and, uh, and Noah, Benjamin, Andrew, and Zachary, I think is what you said, something like that. That's not, that's not what our boys' names are. We named them after the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> Death, pestilence, famine, and disease. And sometimes when I speak in churches, death has accompanied me. Um, pestilence often, famine never. So, but thank you for that introduction, Bob. I want to speak to you today about the Holy Spirit and the hope of salvation in one of the most remarkable passages in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. We started yesterday getting an overview of Romans, and I will go over that again this morning a little, little bit. But we're looking at Romans eight sixteen through 39 especially. And just to give you an overview, the theme of Romans is the justification of God in the gospel. Paul is arguing that his gospel does not in any way at all lower the standard of God's holiness and righteousness. In fact, he says that because of the cross of Christ, the, this standard is established. Only one person could pay for our sins, and we are not it. It's Jesus Christ himself who could do that. And his death, the death of a perfect Passover lamb, has once for all paid for our sins. So you could break Romans down into seven different sections, all beginning with the letter S, Nice little alliteration, but we're, be, we're, we're going to be looking at the section called sanctification today, and I wanted to expand on what sanctification means because it's a, it's a big 50-cent word, or, or as my dad likes to say, it's a word that preachers preach uh, who preach in a stained-glass voice. But uh, we'll, we'll try to explain what it is, make it a little bit clearer to you. So that's what we're going to be looking at. The three chapters that deal with sanctification in Romans are 6, 7, and 8. We'll be looking just at chapter 8, but let me just give you kind of a breakdown of how Paul goes through this. In chapter 6, he basically says why we should not sin. It's a great chapter on why Christians should not sin. It's been because we were baptized with Christ in his death. We are associated with Christ, and if we sin, it's as if we are treating him as though he's a sinner. One of the remarkable things about what we'll see in this chapter is, in chapter 8, is that when we do not follow God's will, we are pragmatic atheists, because we are essentially saying, God, either you don't exist, or you're irrelevant, and you really can't uh, do good for me. We're going to see that what Paul is arguing is that the true Christian wants to seek to do God's will in spite of not knowing whether that's something that's going to be bringing him comfort or not. We do it because he is God. Chapter 7 talks about how not to not sin. Not how not to sin, but how not to not sin. And the way you do not uh, sin... Let me get this right. Now I'm confused. Uh, the, the names again? Death? <laughs> anyway. Um, how not to not sin. You don't not sin by submitting yourself to the law. The law, Paul says, is good, holy, and righteous, the Old Testament law, but he uh, believes that we are no longer under the law. We are under now the law of Christ. And yet that puts him in a quandary when he says, wait a minute, because uh, in chapter 6 he said, we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. So is the law bad? And in chapter 7, Paul makes a very important distinction. He says, no, the law is good and holy and righteous, but it can't save us. The law is like a mirror that reveals how ugly we all are in the morning, uh, but it can't do anything to change our looks. The law is, another way to think about it, is the law is like a sterile spoon. And if you had a glass and you scooped up some water from the gutter from the, the, the storm last night and let it sit on your windowsill for a few days, more than likely most of that water would look pretty clear with the sediment settling down. The law is like a sterile spoon. You stick it into the glass, you stir it around, and now you realize how dirty all that water really is. 
Did the spoon make the water dirty? Or did it just reveal how dirty it was? That's what the law is. It's powerless to help us overcome sin. What the law cannot do, the Holy Spirit does do. And Paul addresses the role of the Holy Spirit in chapter 8, talking about the progress of sanctification or of spiritual growth in this life. Now, let me uh, address some of those issues for you. Uh, And chapter 8 is about the Spirit, the Spirit of sanctification. And I've done what may be perceived as an unnatural break, starting with verse 16 through 39, because the first 17 verses go together. And that's about the power of the Spirit to sanctify. And then 18 through 39 is the goal of sanctification. And Paul talks about our present sufferings, which we will address, and then our future glory. And then he offers one of the great passages in all of Scripture, this uh, remarkable hymn of assurance. So have your Bibles ready and open, and if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in front of you in the, in the pew. And uh, the, the church uses the ESV, which is what I'm using this morning, except in a couple of places, I think. Well, let me begin by asking, what is sanctification? There's no place in your notes for writing this out, so use the back side of the paper unless there's something on the back side. But uh, anyway, here's the question. What is sanctification? Salvation exists in three tenses. The New Testament speaks of salvation in terms of justification. That is, that God justifies us. He declares us to be innocent of all charges at the bar of God's justice. This is what took place in the past. It's because we have put our faith in Jesus Christ that God now looks on the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, as covering all of our sins. Sanctification is also one of the tenses of justification, and that's the progress of our state toward matching our status. Our status now is that as far as God is concerned, we're innocent of all charges. We are not guilty. We are righteous. That's our status. But our state is that you and I are still sinners. Sanctification is moving from where we are right now towards that status, which doesn't ultimately happen until we get to heaven. So sanctification is salvation in the present tense. And glorification is when the state and the status are identical. When you and I die, or when we get raptured, whichever comes first, we will be with the Lord. And when that happens, then our status of absolute righteousness and our state of sinlessness will match. In the meantime, we're stuck on earth as miserable sinners, and our growth in sanctification looks very much like the stock market charts. It's moving, ultimately, in the right direction, but there's lots of dips along the way. Another way to think about this is that justification is the removal of the penalty of sin. That's our status. In the past, God has declared us to be righteous, and He still does. That's the removal of the penalty of sin. But the power of sin is still with us. Sanctification is the removal of the power of sin, but that's our state, and it's not a perfect state. It happens throughout all of our lives as we continue to grow in grace And Paul, in this chapter, talks about how we grow in grace, which is through the Spirit. And finally, glorification is the removal of the presence of sin. Isn't that going to be wonderful? The penalty's been paid, the power no longer is there, it's it's completely eradicated, and our state and our status are the same. Starting to get a good sense of what sanctification is and how to think about salvation? Another way to look at it, I'm, I'm a professor, I try to go over things 47 different ways because uh, students are notorious at not getting it, and so you have to do this all the time. Uh, But I know you guys will do well on the test tonight. So justification is instantaneous. At the moment that I put my faith in Jesus Christ, God declares me righteous. That happens at conversion. It's a, a, a status that is conferred on us. God declares us righteous, but he doesn't make us righteous. It's like when you redeem a slave, and Paul actually uses that very terminology in Romans 3.24. If you purchase a slave from the slave market, you've redeemed him, he is, and, and you set him free. He's no longer a slave. That's his status. But his state is he's still used to thinking like a slave. It's, it's like uh, Christians who go into the military... 
If you've ever noticed them, you know, the guys who, when they come out of the military, very, very often when they pray, they say, Dear Sir. <laughs> They're used to it. Their, their status has changed, but it takes a while to get used to uh, addressing the Lord a little differently. Sanctification is progressive, not instantaneous, and it's what takes place in our earthly life. Glorification is instantaneous, takes place at the death, at our death or the rapture, and then it's an ongoing state without the power and the presence of sin there at all. So we have one that's instantaneous, one that's progressive, one that's instantaneous, and then progressive. Now, if I charted all this out, you could think of it along these ways. Justification happens. This is kind of a chronological chart. And the, the line below is kind of where we are. We have our spiritual birth at justification. Our spiritual life begins at that point. And then at physical death, that's when we are glorified. And then God's righteousness is conferred on us, not just in status, which it is at justification, but also in our state where he eradicates the power of sin. From spiritual birth until physical death, we are in the process of being sanctified, and we are still sinners. And that's the rub. And that's why we need a chapter like Romans chapter 8 today, because we are not perfect human beings, and we want to know, can we have the assurance of salvation? The problem comes precisely because we're sinners. Because even though we're growing in grace, it looks like the stock market. And we just take a 300-point dip, and we're saying, Lord, am, am I really saved? Do I really know you? And a lot of you have questioned that uh, for a, lot, uh, a long part of your lives. Many of you are questioning it now. This is a chapter you need to hear to help you to grow in grace. If I know that I have the assurance of salvation, then my spiritual life progresses on full speed ahead, really. It doesn't mean I won't sin, but knowing that I have that assurance of salvation, it strips away the fear, and perfect love, as John says, casts out all fear. The problem with sanctification is that it's mixed with sin, and we're always falling short. That's what Paul says in Romans 3.23 that we looked at last night, for all have sinned and still fall short of the glory of God. The all he's talking about in 3.23, as we saw last night, is not all people, but all believers. All Christians still fall short of God's glory. It's not static. It's not our status. It's an ongoing state. And the assurance of salvation often is mistaken, mistakenly seen as dependent on it. That is, if I'm growing X amount, then I can be assured of my salvation. Is that really what Scripture teaches that I, that I have to be living a holy life in order to uh, have assurance of salvation. Well, the issue is not real, real simple, but we'll explain how it works out as we go through this. Another way to think about sanctification is what C.E.B. Cranfield wrote in his magnificent two-volume commentary on Romans. Cranfield uh, may well have written the very finest commentary on any book of the Bible. Uh, this was the opinion of Harold Honer, who was the Depart New Testament department chairman at Dallas Seminary for years, uh, where he just he said, Cranfield's commentary on Romans, I think, is the best commentary ever written on any book of the Bible. I think maybe Harold Honer's commentary on Ephesians that came out shortly before he died might rival it. Cranfield said that justification are, and, and sanctification are distinct, but they're inseparable. That is a really excellent statement. We can distinguish them and talk about them, but they're inseparable. As soon as justification takes place, sanctification begins. They both start at the same time, and sanctification reinforces in our own hearts that we have been justified. All true Christians grow in grace, but this growth, sanctification, is not what actually saves us. It's the evidence that we are saved. So Romans 8 it deals with these issues. Romans 8 is the Holy Spirit chapter in the New Testament. Nineteen times the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Spirit is mentioned 21 times. Twice it's not the Holy Spirit. But this is more than the rest of Romans combined. You take all the rest of the chapters of Romans and the, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 13 times. It's more than any chapter in the Gospels 
And yet the Gospels, especially John, speak a lot about the Holy Spirit. It's also more than any chapter in the book of Acts where we see the acts of these great apostles who are doing wonders and signs through the the, the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 mentions the Holy Spirit more than any chapter in the entire New Testament. This is the Holy Spirit chapter. It's not about spiritual gifts, though, and that's the remarkable thing. When we think about the Holy Spirit, so many people think, Holy Spirit, that's spiritual gifts. I know the Spirit, I have the Spirit, I speak in tongues, and yet chapter 8 of Romans is the number one chapter on the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mention spiritual gifts in here at all. Chapter 8 is about the Spirit sanctifying us while assuring us of our salvation, and that's the key here to understanding what chapter 8 is doing. It's talking about how we grow in grace by the power of the Spirit, but how Paul can tell us that we can have assurance of salvation even though we are sinners. He begins in verse 1 with one of these most remarkable statements again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Greek really is a little bit stronger than this. There is therefore not even any condemnation, not even a smidgen of condemnation. The IRS, not so, but when it comes to salvation, yes, there is not a smidgen of condemnation coming from God uh, about our salvation. That's the remarkable thing. Now, you may notice in your Bible, it probably lists a marginal note, says some ancient authorities add some words. And there are two different groups of manuscripts that add these words. We have a group that begins in the 5th century where they say this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh. And then in the 8th century and later, we have other manuscripts who add, but do walk according to the Spirit. And so you have that fullest statement which we find in the King James Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but do walk according to the Spirit. The problem is that these ancient scribes, although they were trying to be faithful to the text, at times they sometimes muddled with grace. And they, they, they thought maybe this absolute statement is a little bit too much. Our earliest, our best manuscripts ended, period, after Christ Jesus. But other later manuscripts add these qualifications. And that looks a little bit disturbing, as if to say, Paul, what you're saying is too wonderful to believe. We have to mess with it. Let's add some qualifications here. But modern translations recognize what we really have in verse 1. I'm I'm skipping through a number of uh, verses because of uh, what we actually want to get to, the second half of Romans 8, and we won't look at every text there either. But in verse 9, Paul goes on, he says, You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if someone does not have the Spirit of Christ, this person does not belong to him. What Paul is saying here is it's a remarkable thing. It's a co-inness, if you will. We are in the Spirit if the Spirit is in us. Think about that. That's a remarkable thing. Am I a Christian in the Spirit? Yes, if the Spirit is in me, and vice versa. Uh, how that could be is, is uh, mind-boggling. But Paul adds, if someone does not have the Spirit of Christ, this person does not belong to him. All true Christians have the Spirit We receive the Spirit. As a matter of fact, we are baptized by the Spirit the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit you have been baptized, whether slave or free, man or woman, young or old, rich or poor, you've all been made to drink of one Spirit. He puts it in the passive voice to say it it did not require any action on your part. You put your faith in Christ... And here's something else that happens, whether you know it or not. All of us at the point of salvation are baptized by the Spirit. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, (coughs) excuse me, the one who raised Christ from the dead will make alive even your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells within you. What's remarkable in the New Testament is you ask the question, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead? Well, we know that God the Father raised him from the dead. We have plenty of texts that speak about that. Here we have a text that speaks about the Spirit raising Christ from the dead. In Ephesians chapter 1, 
Paul talks about how the power that was necessary to raise Christ from the dead is needed for our sanctification. What this means is we cannot grow in grace. We cannot grow as Christians on our own. As John has the Lord say in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. We know that the same power that is required to raise Jesus Christ from the dead is necessary to cause us to grow in grace. You and I cannot fight sin on our own. When we do it, we're fighting in the flesh. And Paul says if you're in the flesh, then uh, you don't belong to Christ. It's not just God the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not just the Spirit who raised him from the dead. Jesus Christ also raised himself from the dead. In John's Gospel, John chapter 2, he's speaking to the Jewish leaders. And they say, show us a sign because you've just gone through the temple and you've cleansed it. You've kicked out of the animals and, and the, the, uh, the animal traders. Who do you think you are? And he said, here's the sign I'm going to show you. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They thought, wait a minute. This temple has been in the process of being built for 46 years, and you're, you're going to raise it up in three days? Then John adds, but he was speaking of the temple which was his body. Jesus declared to these religious leaders, in three days I will raise myself from the grave. That messes with your mind, doesn't it? I mean, to think about that, it's, it's remarkable. And later in John's gospel, he says, if I lay my life down, I will take it up. He was involved in raising himself from the dead. So we have the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, and we also know that resurrection power is what is necessary for us to grow in grace. In verse 15, you have not received a spirit of slavery. Here's one of the two places where spirit is used other than of the Holy Spirit in this chapter. Leading again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit of adoption is actually literally the spirit of adoption of sons. In the Roman world, it was only sons who could be adopted. And here's how it worked. Uh, a wealthy landowner would, ha would have a wife and several concubines. He would have several children. Now, he's got so much wealth, but it's not an infinite amount of wealth. And let's say he's worth about $10 million in today's terminology. So he's got 30 kids. Does he want to give them all one-thirtieth of that $10 million? Or would we rather pick just a handful of them so that his wealth doesn't get diluted for the next generation so much? His name goes on in prosperity, and, 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 and I mean in uh, uh, posterity, not prosperity. And so uh, he, um, he chooses, say, four sons. I'm going to give my wealth to you four sons. And when they're about 12 or 13, takes them into the marketplace, there's a big... Uh, ceremony that he goes through, and when he goes through that ceremony with that child, that child becomes an adopted son. Up until, until that time, he was a child, but he was not adopted as son. That means he is an heir, because not all of this wealthy landowner's children would become heirs. He chooses four of them. Each of them gets two and a half million dollars. That's, that's a pretty nice inheritance. We cry out to God by whom we have received the spirit of adoption, and we call God Father. Every one of us, this is the one place that I can say with a great deal of confidence, even you women are called sons in the Bible, because only sons would be adopted, and yet all of us are called sons, because in that sense we are adopted by God. Let me show you uh, about what Paul says about that when we get into verses 16 and 17. Now we get into the text suffering sons as evidence of God's paternity. In verse 16, this is where I'm going to have a difference with the ESV. The Spirit bear, uh, himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. This is the other place where the word spirit one time does not refer to the Holy Spirit. Is the text saying the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit or to our spirit? I think the ESV has with our spirit, does it not? And I, I published an article on this after the ESV was published, uh, one of the translators, one of the chief translators for the ESV said, okay, I, I completely agree with you. You proved your point, but it was too late for the ESV. I don't know what the others think of it. 
What I did was I looked at this, this word bears witness. It's a particular word in Greek, sumartereo. And I looked at it in every single instance in all of Greek literature spanning uh, about uh, 2,000 years. And what I discovered is, overwhelmingly, it has the force of strengthening the idea of bearing witness to. If we say the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, it may be read as if to say the Spirit bears witness alongside of our spirit to God that we are God's children. But that decisively is not what Paul's talking about. He is not saying that uh, I witness to God that I'm his child. Oh, and the Spirit also, he has a voice in this. As if the Spirit's testimony is on a par with ours. There is no place in the Bible where the Spirit is on a par with us. He is so far beyond us, it's, it's remarkable. Not only that, but our hearts are prone to wander. And the Spirit bears witness to God and to our spirit that we are God's children. He is constantly reminding you and me that we belong to God, that God has claims of paternity on our life. And when God is called our Father, He can't divorce you. That's not something that happens. He's always your Father. The Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. In 1 John 3.20, we read, Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. This is essentially saying the same thing that Romans 8.16 is saying. Our heart plays tricks on us. It condemns us. If we are waiting for the Spirit to bear witness with our spirit, and then we get the vote of both our spirit and the Holy Spirit that we're God's child, we're not going to believe it, because our spirit doesn't want to go along. But when our heart condemns us, God, even God the Holy Spirit, is greater than our heart. And he knows everything, and he is constantly reassuring us that we belong to him. This is a thing that I think many Christians don't fully appreciate. We do view the Bible as our final authority, but we don't often recognize that we have a very personal relationship to God through the Holy Spirit. And he communicates with us in what I'd call non-discursive means, that is not verbally, but he still convinces us of things. There's times in your lives when you've prayed for something and all of a sudden there's a rush of peace about it. Uh, and you say, wow, uh, I think the Spirit is, is in this. I can tell you, and I don't think I've even mentioned this in public before, um, but in, in the three debates that I've had with Bart Ehrman uh, over the text of the New Testament, he was on a national championship debate team in high school. So you knew he was, he was primed for these debates. Let, let me see. I've still got 15, 20 minutes, Bob. Is that right? Okay, we're, we're in good shape then. And um, I've been involved in six debates in my life, half of them with Bart Ehrman. I would rather chew glass than debate. But... <laughs> Sometimes you get called to do something, and in our first debate, they asked me about 14 months ahead of time, and I finally, after two weeks of debating whether I should debate, um, and then I lost that debate, that tells you a lot, uh, uh, I finally decided, yes, I'll debate him. So I spent four hours a day, six days a week, for 14 months getting ready for that debate. I think he prepared the night before, and that's why he didn't do as well. But... In the second debate, I knew he would come ready for me. And here we were at Southern Methodist University in their largest auditorium, 1,425 people. And uh, I had done my preparation, but I was in the room just before I went on stage, and I have never been so petrified in my entire life. And uh, I, I, I could hardly even stand. I mean, I thought I was going to faint. And this was five minutes before I went on stage. And I spoke with a colleague of mine, and I said, Rory, I, I need you to pray with me right now, because I am, I, I don't know why, but I just, I can't do this on my own. And so he prayed with me. And there was a sense of peace and joy that came over me like I had never experienced before. And I walked out onto that stage thanking God for his goodness 
And I actually had a fun time in the debate. It was remarkable. God really worked through his spirit to give me what I needed to face uh, uh, Dr. Ehrman. He does that for us. And it's not just that we cling to the Word. We cling to Him personally. One of our sons, 22 years ago, had cancer. He lost a kidney. And during the time of chemotherapy for six months, he was eight years old, um, we were really struggling with um, uh, just how, how to deal with the possibility of, of us losing a son. This was our son, uh, Andy. That really is his name. So now you know. Anyway, um, and I struggled with my relationship to God to the point where I got so angry at God one day, I just pounded my fist on my desk. I said, God, where are you? I had tried to know him and to, to hear his spirit, if you will, just through my study of the text not through my relationship with him personally. And I'm not saying that one disagrees with the other ever. But what I am saying is that our relationship to God is a love with our minds and with our hearts and with our souls. We are not disembodied spirits. We are not disembodied minds. We are people that need to have a relationship with God that that covers our whole person. And Romans 8.16 became a very significant verse to me. And in the process, that's when I did all the research on every single instance of this and found that the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. And what this means is that even when you are sinning, the Spirit is there convincing you that God has claims on your life, that he is your father, he has paternal claims on you that you are in fact saved. And we dare not suffocate the voice of the Spirit as we uh, move along as Christians. Verse 17, now if children, that is if we are children, then we are heirs. That right there is a remarkable statement and a totally un-Roman kind of statement. Why would Paul say this if only sons would be heirs in the Roman culture? Well, the reason is because God is a landowner of infinite wealth. All of his children are sons. He doesn't adopt just some of us. He adopts all of us. And Paul actually says in this very chapter that we're waiting for our adoption as sons. So he says here, now, if we are children, then we are heirs. On the one hand, heirs of God. But on the other hand, fellow heirs with Christ. Then he adds, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Well, is salvation conditioned on this suffering then? Is that what Paul's saying? That we cannot be saved unless we suffer with him. Only then can we be glorified with him. This is going to be answered, I think, in this next section under present sufferings. But I want to begin with verse 18 and, 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 and put some stress on this for just a moment. So the goal of sanctification, Paul starts in at verse 18, and through verse 27 he deals with present sufferings. And one of the things he says here... Again, one of these remarkable passages is, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Well, is that just empty platitudes, or did Paul know what he was talking about? Two years earlier, he wrote 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about a man who had gone up to the third heaven. And he said, I don't know whether it was in body or spirit, but I know this man who did this. He doesn't tell us his name. Virtually all commentators are agreed Paul is talking about his own autobiography. And he, just out of humility, would not say it that way. But then he goes on and he says, and he heard things that were inexpressible. The glory was magnificent. And Paul probably had this during a near-death experience and so you hear about those today. Paul, I think, well, as we know, was, was uh, considered dead more than one time. Here's a man who had been in God's presence. And when he says in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, 
He also, I think, in part means, and the glory that has been revealed to me. You can bank on it. It's a remarkable text when you think of it in light of 2 Corinthians 12. And this passage, this verse, in light of that book, 2 Corinthians, has been enormously helpful to me as I struggle with sin and face temptations and wrestle with all sorts of things. And I begin to say, wait a minute, the present sufferings aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. I need to gut it out. I need to obey the Lord. I need to do the right thing. It's a remarkable verse that really helps us in that way. Now, Paul goes on, and he talks about this suffering in verses 18 through 22. And here's what he says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It's speaking almost personifying creation, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He's speaking about vegetables and plants and animals. And he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So somebody has been persecuting an eggplant? Is that what you're saying, Paul? Sounds bizarre. I think what Paul is saying here is when he speaks about the suffering with Christ in Romans 8.17, when he speaks about suffering here, what he is really essentially saying is that this suffering is not the suffering of persecution. He does address that in another book. But this suffering is a perspectival suffering. It's a suffering that says we live in a fallen world, and in a fallen world things happen. Like my son getting cancer. It wasn't his fault, but he still got cancer, eight years old. And it's a recognition that God is still absolutely sovereign, but that this world is not all there is to reality. That there is an until. And when we finally reach that date, then all of this suffering will be gone. And so I think what Paul is saying is that just like all of creation which is not Christian, but it's suffering because of the sin of Adam who plunged all of creation into decay. It's a perspectival thing. If we have the attitude of recognizing that we are part of a fallen world and that sin affects our lives even when it was not uh, intentional, that is, not that somebody tried to hurt us, but things happen. Natural disasters happen. Uh, Then That perspective is the attitude we have to have about present suffering. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 8, 17. And then he goes on, and he speaks of how the Spirit prays for us, and he uses terminology that, again, is similar to what occurs in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, namely the first fruits which are the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. There it is. All of you women will be sons someday. Not in the sense, anyway. Um, The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit... This is a remarkable text, again, that needs some comment. Verse 26. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is not the Spirit speaking in tongues, as some people like to make it out. Because tongues were always language, a real language. And consequently, if the Spirit is groaning in ways that are too deep for words, then he's not speaking in tongues. And he's also not speaking in something that he doesn't know because he knows everything. He is interceding for us with groanings that are too deep for words. Now, that's a little difficult to comprehend, but not fully impossible to comprehend. Those of you who are married, you get a look from your wife. It's a look that is too deep for words. 
but you know exactly what it means. I get those looks even over the phone with my wife. And when we face this cancer of our son, there were times where we just held each other and didn't have any, any words to say. But we groaned together in ways that were too deep for words. What's remarkable is what Romans 8.26 is saying is that God prays to God on our behalf. I think that the Spirit intercedes with groanings that are too deep for words for little Agatha. Bob has told me about her, and it's just broken my heart to hear about getting hit by this drunk driver and being in the hospital so long, and then this swelling. Uh, but the Spirit intercedes for that family, for Vitaly and Anna and Agatha. And we can intercede as well we should take a great deal of comfort that that's what the Holy Spirit does. If God is for you, who can be against you? And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now we get to future glory. And Paul says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. One of the great known verses of the New Testament followed by one of the great unknown verses of the New Testament. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become formed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, verse 28, we all know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to God's purpose, for those who love God. But what does that really mean? This is not a Pollyanna verse that everything is going to be okay. You get everybody who says it. Oh, don't worry about it. It's all going to work out fine in the end. That is not at all what Paul is saying. There are two conditions that we love God and that we are called according to his purpose. To be called according to his purpose means that we are believers. The Holy Spirit is the one who calls us according to God's purpose at the very moment in which he saves us. And the good that he works out is not our comfort, it's not our wealth, it's not our convenience, it's not our lack of embarrassment. Our good is what he describes in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The good that God works out in your life, in my life, is that he is forming in us Jesus Christ himself. We are becoming Christ-like. And that may mean at times, and it does mean at times, it is against your comfort. It's against your wealth. It's against your health. But Christ is being formed in us. That is the good that God is ultimately doing in us. It's conditioned on those who love God, but what this does not mean is if you're loving God right now, he works this thing out according to his purpose. No. If we've been called by the Spirit, if we've been chosen by the Father, if we've been redeemed by the Son, at the moment that we put our faith in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works in us actually to love God himself. And consequently, we do love God if we are believers. Do we love Him all the time? Of course not. There's times where we backslide, where our chart of, of spiritual growth looks like uh, Wall Street. And yet at the same time, this is a permanent statement. We love God because we have been chosen by Him. And consequently, He is causing in us this growth towards Christ-likeness. Then he says... In verse 30, another remarkable yet forgotten verse. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Predestination has to do with choosing to save us before time itself. He also called. That has to do with the Holy Spirit inviting us to be saved at a point in time. And it's a, um, an invitation that is irresistible. 
It's kind of like the Johnny Cochran of heaven, if you go back to uh, O.J. Simpson's trial. Um, anyway, we, I, I don't want to go there. So, um, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. The moment that he called us, the moment he invited us, is the moment we were justified. So all those whom he called are justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, we haven't been glorified yet. Paul puts this in the past tense because it's just as sure as our predestination, as our calling, and our justification. It's every bit as sure as what God has done for us in the past, he will do for us in the future. And so if he has called you, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be glorified. Paul is so certain of it, he says you have been glorified. It's a very rare, it's called a futuristic heiress, very rare that that's used that you have a particular past tense verb used to describe a future event. And Paul does it here in a way that uh, shows that there's nobody lost from predestination to glorification. In fact, the Greek that he uses is really awkward Greek. He uses doubly redundant pronouns all the way through. There is no reason for him to say, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. In fact, the ESV doesn't even have it as strongly as Paul words it because it's too awkward. And those whom he predestined, these he also called. And those whom he called, these he also justified. And those whom he justified, these he also glorified. It's a doubly redundant use of the pronouns to say that from predestination to glorification, absolutely nobody is lost. That's a remarkable truth, and it's one of the great assurances we have of salvation right there. Then finally, Paul gets into his hymn of assurance, verses 31 through 39, and he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. So he was condemned. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So both the Spirit and the Son intercede for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then Paul goes through this litany, and I, I wish I had time to develop this. I'm going to have to kind of summarize in the last section of the notes for you. But he says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, will any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? Every one of those things would cause some inner turmoil so that a person might want to abandon Christ if that were the case. But if he is truly a Christian, nothing will separate him from the love of Christ. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The reason Paul points this out, he says, look, our life is not comfortable. It's exceedingly stressful. Yet nothing separates us from the love of Christ. Well, Paul, if by the love of Christ you mean comfort and wealth and prosperity, man, you got your theology all wrong. And Paul says, I don't mean any of that. I mean that he is forming in me Jesus Christ himself and that I know that God is my Father and that I have this assurance of salvation. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That kind of sounds all-inclusive, doesn't it? And, and so when you read statements like by Godet, who's a, an old commentator, on this, it, I, I begin to scratch my head. What Paul means is that nothing will tear us from the arms of Christ against our will. Wait a minute. Where does he say that? The fact is, if nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, our will is a part of that all-exclusive all, uh, sta statement. Nothing separates us, including our will. And this is one of those passages that uh, some people have tried to see as our volition can separate us. And let me just, uh, I give all these points and you're not going to understand any of them except for the last one. 
or the last two. The theme of the chapter is this assurance that Paul speaks of. And it would be a, a gross injustice and a change of what he's trying to argue if at the very end he says, well, you're assured of salvation except if your will goes against it. That would, it would make no sense. In fact, in verse 16, the Spirit bears witness to our spirit, in spite of our spirit. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. <coughs> and so the, the final point I want to stress is this. There is a correlation with other parts of Scripture, and one of the great passages in the Bible is John chapter 10, where Jesus speaks about being the great shepherd. And he says that his sheep know his voice, and not one of them will ever perish. And then he goes on, he says, and the Father is greater than I am. And and what he means is that while he's on earth, he's uh, subordinate to the Father and has uh, an earthly existence as well. But he says that he knows his sheep, and he holds his sheep in his own hand like the good shepherd, and the Father holds Christ in his hand. It's a double assurance of salvation. A good shepherd, to press the analogy which I think the Lord himself does, does not say, okay, sheep, I'm going to protect you from the wolves and the lions and the bears and thieves, but if you wander off on your own, all bets are off. That's not what good shepherds do. What a good shepherd does is if a lamb repeatedly wanders off, he actually breaks its leg, and then he carries that lamb. So the lamb becomes dependent on him. For the rest of its life, it walks with a limp, but it also walks in a total dependence uh, in relationship to that shepherd. God sometimes brings bad things in our lives to bring about these dependent relationships for us to recognize that. Paul says in this entire chapter two statements that form an inclusio. An inclusio is where he'll, he'll, somebody starts something at the beginning of a section and he ends with the same kind of an idea to reinforce this point. Chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Period. Chapter 8, verse 39, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Those two interpret each other. How clear could Paul be that we cannot lose our salvation if we've genuinely put our faith in Jesus Christ? And in the process, the Holy Spirit is causing you and me to grow in gratitude for what he's provided. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible goodness to us, a goodness that at times may even look like evil. Father, we believe that all things work together for good for those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. And we believe that what that good is, is that Christ may be formed in us. But Lord, at times it's very difficult because suffering in this fallen world is not an easy thing. Help us to believe even more. Help us to trust you more. And Lord, we ask that your spirit will convince our hearts that we have this great salvation and that you have claims in our lives forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to respond in song now.